Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. New Books in Economics, brought to you by EAEPE, the European Association for Evolutionary Political Economy. Welcome back to this new episode of New Books in Economics, part of the New Books Network. Today's book is so great that it requires not one, but two hosts of the channel to handle it. One is me, Andrea Bernardi from Oxford Brooks University in the UK, and one is Carlo Di Politi from Sapienza University of Rome in Italy. Hi. We are here with uh, Professor C.K. Lee from University of California, Los Angeles, to talk about her book, The Spectre of Global China, Politics, Labor, and Foreign Investment in Africa, published in 2017 by Chicago University Press. Welcome, and thanks for, for being here. Thank you for having me. Professor Chinkwan Lee was in Kyoto at uh, the Shisha University in June 2018. She was the keynote speaker of the 30th SASE conference. And in this occasion, we heard about the book and we organized uh, this conversation. Her research project lasted for six, seven years, during which she has conducted field research in copper mines and construction sites in Zambia. A key question addressed here is whether Chinese capital is a different type of capital. By the end of the conversation, and also by the end of the book, we shall know if it is a different type of capital, and if it is, if it is different, if it is a, a better or a worse type of capital. <laughs> you have defined Chinese state capitalism compared with global capitalism in terms of business objectives, labor practices, managerial ethos, and political engagement with Zambia. You have written a book with huge policy implications, a great contribution to so many fields, sociology of labor first, but not only. But above all, you have written a beautiful book, which is a pleasure to read. At times, it reads like a novel, particularly my favorite part, which is the long appendix at the end, and this is called An Ethnographer's Odyssey, the mundane and the sublime of searching China in Zambia. But let's get started. I will pass the word now to Carla. CK, if I may may call you in this way, Um, would you start by possibly tell us a little bit about yourself? I mean, sometimes apparently you self-describe as an ethnographer or an anthropologist or a sociologist. Could you tell a little bit about you? Uh, Of course. Um, I have been a student of contemporary China since my graduate school days in Berkeley. And um, yeah, I was trained as both an ethnographer and a sociologist, so I would describe myself as an ethnographic sociologist of the kind or of the tradition that emphasizes theory and incorporating the macro-level analysis into ethnographic studies. Uh, I've been studying contemporary China, particularly anything to do with labor and labor politics, Uh, since my first book, and this is my third one, and um, 
when I started this research um, in 2007, it was a time when Chinese investment has gone global. And uh, for me, that presented a very uh, unique opportunity to study global China from the labor perspective. And um, as this research unfolded, I realized that I wasn't just studying labor, because when you study labor, you always have to consider the state as well as capital. And so the book um, that we're discussing today is actually a study of state labor um, and uh, capital, with the particular emphasis, as you mentioned, um, the question of whether Chinese state capital is a different kind of capital. And could you possibly tell us a little bit more about how specifically the idea for this book uh, arise. Okay. How was it born? <laughs> well, when I finished my second book, Against the Law, uh, Labor Protest in China's Rust Belt and Sun Belt, that was, the book came out in 2007. And um, when I was finishing it in 2006 and 2007, um, the international media began um, this, the circulation of reports uh, by the major media outlets, uh, BBC, New York Times, The Guardian, um, CNN, etc., on labor conditions of Chinese companies operating in Africa. And um, so I was very um, intrigued by this phenomenon because the general discourse at that time was that Chinese capital, Chinese investors, were particularly exploitative. And, and labor exploitation has been my theoretical concern since my first book. So it was just very natural for me to go global uh, as China goes global as well. So my research just follows uh, the footsteps of Chinese development and, uh, and Chinese capital and Chinese labor for that matter. Uh, Professor Li, you mentioned um, the beginning uh, of your interest uh, with China professionally and your current project. Uh, I lived in China between 2009 and 2012. I was teaching for a British university there. And when I arrived in, 2000, in 2009, uh, let's say um, the perception of China in the world was very different, was more controversial, let's say. Uh, today, China's international role is much more established uh, and f- to some extent, and China is almost becoming mainstream in, in, in some fields. Uh, but the presence in Africa remains highly controversial. Uh, why this is the case? Uh, is it because Africa is closer to the West or because of the concentration of strategic minerals or what else? I think um, China's rise in general has always been controversial because it is still a communist regime in a world that is largely capitalist, and I'm not saying China is not capitalist, but the rest of the world still looks at communism with a certain level of anxiety and a feeling of um, under siege and distrust. And the behavior of the Chinese regime, especially since 2012, under the current leadership, uh, has made the issue of China even more controversial because there has been a very obvious and sharp turn to authoritarianism, to even more authoritarianism in in all domains of life, not just um, domestically or globally, but but in every areas of life, in education, 
in media, um, in ordinary lives. And, and so, I mean, we can raise a lot of examples. We can go into that if you want. But I think the general sense and anxiety uh, is warranted in a sense that the regime has taken a sharp right turn, so to, so to speak. Um, and uh, p- people's freedom, liberty um, has been curtailed uh, tremendously. Uh, uh, so since you know 2012, so I, I think I think China has always been controversial because it is still the largest um, and maybe the only um, powerful and and significant communist power, and and so it's a very different system of um, government um, and a very powerful one, <laughs> and so so what whatever it does will attract attention. And when it goes to Africa, when it expands into Africa and, and Latin America and more recently with the One Belt, One Road, um, even to the Middle East and some parts of Europe, um, the West naturally would react with a high level of concern. And there are politicians who would um, invoke the idea of colonialism, um, which they like to see. Uh, to be, you know, in history books and no longer with us, and and they invoke that term to sort of raise the specter, as a, as I use in the title of the book, the specter that China is um, maybe on the road to uh, resume colonialism, and um, so I think China being a new powerful kid on the block uh, is is naturally calling attention from many, many different quarters. And that's the West concern from the part of the African countries, um, China's presence um, and the influx of money and resources, um, I mean, human resources from China to Africa also raises a lot of concern, Uh, sometimes hope, but other times fear that whether, you know, like the West would like to put it, whether China will um, bring back colonialism or African elites would also hopefully consider the possibility that maybe China will bring them a new opportunity uh, of developments that the West hasn't given. So, sorry for me to jump in. Um, at the very beginning of your answer, you incidentally said, I'm not saying China is not capitalist. Now, something that uh, immediately struck me from the very introduction in the book is how many different sources of uh, political economy, literature, even heterodox economics, you discuss a little bit uh, the approach of varieties to capitalism, Polanyi or Giovanni's and Rigi's approaches, uh, and you develop your own idea of varieties of capital rather than varieties of capitalism. Uh, Could you maybe tell us something about that? Uh, In what sense do you think China is capitalist, and especially in in its activities in Africa? I try to stay away from varieties of capitalism, the debate of different kinds of capitalism, because to me, capitalism is only one and global capitalism as a system. What I want to try to say here is that Maybe there are varieties of capital within this global capitalist system. And I think it's easier um, and more productive to see Chinese activities in Africa as a particular type of 
capital, the activities of a particular type of capital, because um, that's what we see. Actually, that companies, uh, privately owned, uh, state-owned companies are going to, to Africa in large numbers. And I think the key question for us to understand what is happening is to look at what these companies do, how they relate to African governments, African elites, and African labor, and what kind of consequences do they produce? I think the, the terms, you can we can throw out as many terms as you, as you want, but until we actually have empirical studies about the actual behavior of these actual actors uh, trying to realize China's interest, we would not be able to, set, to tell you know, whether China is capitalist or whether there is Chinese capitalism. Those are fancy notions. They, they seem to suggest that they convey something important. But ultimately, what we need to know is what is empirically happening on the ground rather than be concerned with these very fancy, uh, significant-sounding kind of labels. And I, it's my belief that we only have one capitalism, which is always global, and China, no matter what you say about China, China is not capitalism in the sense that it is a global system. China is a country. And depending on how you define capitalism, you can always find capitalist features in that country. But doesn't that make China capitalism in itself? No. Capitalism is a global economic structure and system. It has its global dynamics that encompasses many, many countries. So I'm, I'm just not persuaded that the language, the, the, the theories or the concepts, the models of varieties of capitalism, dividing capitalism into different national types makes sense to me. So my proposal in this book is to suggest an alternative way of understanding or tracking what China is doing around the world. And up to date, we, we see mostly Chinese companies operating on the ground. And so the key question is for us is to see whether Chinese state capital, as opposed to other kinds of capital, does behave differently. And if, if it does behave differently, and because it is in such large quantity circulating in the world now, then we have to understand its difference, uh, both in its interest in its imperatives, in its um, dynamics, and also in its consequences for the world. And, and then we can decide whether to call it colonialism, new colonialism, or, or what. So, but, but, but what we have now is that people jumping to these very vague and uh, huge notions before they, we actually take a look at the ground level. So I hope this book suggests something that people would pay attention to, which is let's see what China is doing on the ground. And, and one way to do it, one, one way to get, find, find some useful concept to do it is to see, is to suggest that there may be varieties of capital that, that Chinese is, is sending, China, China is sending out uh, a one a very important type, which is state capital, which other countries also uh, sent to the rest of the world. But in Africa, I think Chinese state capital, state capital from China is the most salient. 
and the most powerful one. And that's why in this book, I compare Chinese state capital with the more generic and commonly found type. And I call that global private capital, which is capital uh, from um, uh, popularly listed companies, like publicly listed companies in the London Stock Exchange or in other um, stock markets, which are global, globally mobile, and they are owned by shareholders um, that you and I can buy shares from. Uh, but innate by, by nature, it is private capital. It's not owned by the government, and it doesn't serve government interests. So, so I, I try to, in this book, try to distinguish the essence, the interest, the behavior, and the, and the impact of these two um, major types of capital. Yes, in, se in several points of the book, you refer to a call to abandon uh, methodological nationalism. So to yeah. talk about China studies uh, from a different perspective. But now let's move uh, back to sociology. You explain how your research is somehow a continuation of your previous field study of labor in China, uh, and after understanding Chinese capitalism, you move to, to Africa. Uh, but this book has somehow another important predecessor, which is the study in Zambia of uh, Zambian minds by the great British-American sociologist, uh, also for, from University of California, but from Berkeley, which is uh, Professor Michael Burawoy uh, is one of the greatest labor sociologists, and uh, I would be very curious to know more about uh, your relationship with him and with his work. Well, <laughs> he was the chair of my PhD dissertation. I studied with him um, in graduate school. I went to UC Berkeley for my PhD in sociology, and he was my chair. He was my advisor, and um, so his work has great impacts on me. And um, when I decided to study China in Africa, I needed to pick a country. And uh, for many reasons, uh, including the fact that Zambia, just incidentally, was the very first country from which China, Ch Chinese state-owned companies had bought the first ever overseas copper mine. And, and also, Zambia was the site of the first Chinese-owned, uh, Chinese-run special economic zone in Africa. Now there are quite a few, but at that time, it was the first one, and the first one was in Zambia. So, and then the third reason um, for me to pick Zambia was exactly what you said, because of Michael Brewer's classic work on the Zambian copper belt. Um, I thought that if I would use Zambia as well as my case, then I could also engage his work, uh, which was done 40 years ago, and I could then establish some kind of comparative analysis based on his work uh, in the, in the late 60s and early 70s. Uh, but the main reason was not because of this. It was because Zambia has been a very important site of Chinese investment and also a very representative case of uh, natural resource um, that China is after. And um, the fact that Michael Burway has studied Zambia uh, was an advantage and added um, reason 
for me to to pick Zambia. But Zamb- Zambia um, was my choice uh, for reasons that have a lot to do with Chinese activities there. Talking about China, a trap on which many fall, as you write, is thinking about China as a monolith, as if it was a unique subject with just one consistent agency. Instead, in the book, you stress the role and even the competition of different Chinese actors. So could you tell us who invests in Africa from China and why? There are many investors from China, different types of investors from China. So when people say Chinese investment, actually this term Chinese investment consists of many different types of Chinese investors. So we can start by the normal, the regular, the large number of um, migrant entrepreneurs, people, ordinary people, family um, migrants um, who establish uh, themselves, open shops, those mom and pop shops that you'll find everywhere among migrant communities around the world. Um, that's the first type. And then you have private companies, privately owned companies from China. And you also have um, bigger ones, uh, private companies, bigger private companies. And then you have the provincial government-owned enterprises from China. And then there are the central government-owned um, enterprises. And what I focus on here in this book is the, the type of Chinese capital that has the closest connection to the state, and I call that state capital, um, to refer to companies who, which are state-owned, but more importantly, these companies are tasked with um, state objectives. That, that is the government of China, the central government of China, has given um, objectives, goals for these companies to achieve. In other words, these state-owned companies have to realize state-defined interests. And I think this is the key definition of state capital, not ownership, not state-owned companies, not all state-owned companies represent state capital because there are provincially owned state capital uh, state companies from China whose interests are no different from private profit maximizing companies. So the key here um, is to define analytically state capital. State capital means capital to for realizing state objectives. And what what is state objectives? would vary with which state we are talking about. And if we're talking about China, then we can say Chinese state objectives in Africa are multiple uh, goals that include profit-making, but not only profit-making. They also want political influence, political patronage, um, and also they want to have access to raw materials, strategic materials from their source not through the market from the source, which means from the mines. So these multiple objectives are state-defined objectives and companies that are required to realize state-defined interests and objectives are state capital. So 
um, I think it's important not to conflate, not to confuse state-owned capital with state capital. These are two different concepts. State-owned companies are defined by ownership type. You look at the legal registration and see, oh, it is owned by the government, so that is state-owned government, uh, state-owned companies. But state-owned companies, sometimes their only, their only objective is to make money, and that makes it the same as private capital. Uh, what I want to highlight here with state, the notion of state capital is that there is a kind of capital whose goal is not defined by shareholders, is not defined by private owners. The goals of state capital are defined by nation state. And in this case, the case that I study, it is defined by the Chinese nation state. Let's move to the actual fieldwork, which was uh, very complex, very long. And I would like to ask you, what were the main challenges in organizing and conducting uh, data collection? In fact, uh, the book is very interesting because you tell also the, the personal chances that let you reach key people. And perhaps you could even tell us if uh, the Zambia of uh, uh, Professor Burawoy was a more complex or an easier environment for research. And also, additionally, the book is particularly interesting because you describe how being your uh, ethnically Chinese, you appear the two Chinese for the Zambian government, but also two Western for the Chinese uh, firms and managers. So uh, what would you like to tell us about this uh, amazingly complex fieldwork? Yes, I, I think the fieldwork is ex ex extremely challenging, and that's why it has taken me seven years to finish this project, uh, because the biggest challenge was to gain access to these very powerful companies. We're talking about you know, the top level um, state companies from China, as well as some mining giants, who are, which are London-listed companies. And there is no reason at all for them to open up to me, a researcher. And um, so it took me a long time to, to build a relationship. I tried many times knocking on the doors uh, through some Chinese friends to Chinese companies. And, and uh, they, I got rejected uh, uh, by the Communist Party secretary in, in um, a smelter. Um, and also, of course, I didn't have any luck uh, in approaching these global private minds until I uh, I'm got to know a friend, a Zambian friend, um, who was uh, at that time when I knew him, who was an opposition politician. That is, he was the, one of the leaders of an opposition party in Zambia. So we just hung out. We we like to complain to each other the frustration we had in our separate lines of work. I complain about not getting access to these companies. He complained about being a politician, uh, fighting the government in you know the fighting the um, the incumbent party, and we 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 hung out a lot. And then in twenty eleven, there was a national election, and his party, the Patriotic Front, uh, won the election. And being the leader of that party, um, he was um, appointed the vice president of the, Z of the Zambian Republic. And overnight, <laughs> I had this very powerful friend um, 
at the top of the government, and、uh, he has always promised me that when they were in power, when their party was in power,、uh, he would help me to conduct my research because it's not just for friendship. Because as the vice president of a country、um, of Zambia, he also wanted to know what was happening. With Chinese investors and all these other global investors, and so basically,、um, he called up the CEOs of all these companies and said that I wanted CK Lee to be my consultant.、Um, you have to open your door to her. So I basically went in to these companies as the vice pre- vice president's consultant, and that has advantages and also disadvantages. And、um, so, but at least. I got access to them. They couldn't say no to the vice president of the country where they invested. So、um, I was helped a lot by a powerful figure. I was playing, if you will, playing very powerful people against very powerful people. So state elites versus、um, capital, and、um, and of course I also have、uh, have had access to the unions、uh, who were. The the first、um, actors in the field who were very open to me to as a researcher、uh, to the miners and the construction workers、uh, because they had lots of stories to tell and、um, they didn't have any、um, concern telling me what was wrong、um, with these investors. So、uh, it was a combination of、um, talking to people at the very top of the social and political hierarchy as well as Going to the mines, literally underground,、uh, going under, and、uh, at the bottom of the social ladder to the underground mines, and also to many mining townships and visiting miners at in their homes and talking to construction workers in construction sites. So,、uh, you're absolutely correct that it has been very challenging and demanding、uh, field work for quite a long time, and the worst part is. The frustration that I have to endure, and、um, and have to really overcome the temptation to quit because it was so difficult, and I wasn't getting anywhere for the beginning for the first few years. That I was thinking about giving up、um, and not to persist and and just not to. I I just told myself that this research was impossible to finish because、um, nobody was allowing me in. Um, to conduct ethno- ethnographic research, not just interviews, but really living with the people, with the managers, the expatriate managers, going to the mines and observe how they actually do mining, how they treat their workers, and so the ethnography part and ethnographic design of the research makes this research much more difficult than a research that use that would use. Say interviews、um, or surveys because I have to hang out and spend time、um, with the companies and with the people and also with the government officials. I studied the government officials as well in terms of how they handle their relations with with China. So they have to really give me lots of access、um, to the government, to the meetings with Chinese representatives.、Um, Companies would have to allow me, and they did let me sit in the bargaining, collective bargaining meetings with between the unions and management, 
And I basically lived for several months in each mine uh, with the expatriate, with the managers. So they got to see me day and night for those few months in each mine. And that was very intrusive, to say the least. <laughs> and so um, to answer your question, um, it has been very difficult because of the SS problem. And I think in the times of Michael Brewer in the 60s, um, he also had to work his way into these companies um, and he, at that time, he got his assets through some personal connections, like me. Um, and we all have to rely on people we know. And there's always a certain element of luck. Um, if I didn't luck out, if I didn't um, meet my friend, uh, my Zambian friend, uh, or got introduced to him uh, by some sheer chance, um, sheer luck, then... I don't know what would happen to my research. Something else would have happened. My research would still um, be able to be finished, although I may not have be able to study the mines. I maybe would only have construction as my case. Um, construction was easier to get into because it was a less um, complicated um, and less powerful uh, sector of the Zambian economy. So... Um, People's concern were they were not, you know, too sensitive to my presence. Not as sensitive as it was the case for copper. Your book is entitled "The Specter of Global China," and you write there is a cultural war whereby Western media try to depict China's investments in Africa as something very similar to imperialism, and of course, very different from what Western countries do. Uh, how is it seen from Africa? What is the perception of, of, of the people in Africa? Well, the perception of Africans, um, again, there is no unified perception. Um, the elites and the ordinary um, citizens oftentimes have very different views. And also very important is that their views change uh, with changing reality. Um, it is very important to understand that Chinese companies, whether private or state-owned or state capital, as I call it, they, they are new to Africa, and they have to learn how to behave like other companies. They have to learn how to adapt to local customs, local standards. And so these companies change quite a bit um, as they spend more time, as they establish themselves, as they climb the learning curve of corporate behavior. So in the case of um, the Chinese state-owned mine in Zambia, it has gone through tremendous changes. Um, and also people's perception of it has also changed a lot. At the beginning, um, of their operation in Zambia. There was a big industrial uh, tragedy. Um, there was an explosion in a subsidiary of the mine that killed um, 40 some people, Zambian people. And at that point, it was 2005. And they have just started operation for several years. And that accident, that incident, um, and the death toll had left a very bad 
uh, impression on the, in the minds of the Zambian people and the government that the Chinese are the worst investors because it killed basically the fire, the explosion killed so many. And so after that, this state-owned mine has tried very hard to change its safety um, measures and safety policies. And more importantly, after the 2008 financial crisis, Zambian people and the government saw that actually Chinese state-owned mine was the one that didn't lay off people, even in the biggest financial crisis in recent times, because it was state-owned. So it wasn't so sensitive to copper prices as other private global private companies were sensitive to drop and rises in copper prices. So after 2008 crisis, after they saw how the Chinese state-owned company reacted to the crisis in a way that really uh, brought stability to Zambia because it didn't lay off people, it didn't cut production, it didn't close any mines. It actually expanded uh, its ownership of mines. It bought another mine that was left behind by a Western investor. After seeing these reactions that helped stabilize the Zambian economy and the labor market, Zambia has a very different view about the Chinese, especially this particular mine. So to answer your question, I think there has been no you know, um, um, fixed perception of among the Africans towards the Chinese um, companies, whether private or state-owned. Uh, things change. It depends on how they behave. And um, and then, um, you know, there are private mines that where you find lots of conflicts between managers and workers, then... Zambians reacted negatively uh, whenever those conflicts flared up. Um, but the same kind of negative perceptions also appear when other global private mines and construction companies violated labor laws or um, make some, made some um, mistakes with their taxation. Um, so I think it's not just the Chinese um, image uh, have been tarnished by corporate behavior uh, and have been improved by corporate behavior. The same has happened to other um, foreign companies. The Indian companies, the Indian mines, um, the Swiss-owned mine also have their own um, have their own problems with public perceptions uh, because there have been scandals being revealed and reported in the media from time to time. So corporate image, nobody has perfect corporate image. Um, in Africa, people have more varied uh, perceptions and varied um, opinion um, about these companies because they are more cognizant of their different behavior. In the West, people are not so up to date about these scandals. Um, but then people in Africa, in that country, uh, they 
learn about these scandals on a daily basis. So their perceptions would change over time and according to these kind of scandals. But in the West, we are not interested in these scandals. These scandals are not reported in the major news media. Um, uh, news media, and so so we don't <laughs> we don't change our perception as realistically um, as those in Africa. If you allow me a half joke as a comment, uh, John Robinson famously said that there is one thing worse than being exploited by capital, and that is not being exploited by capital, because being unemployed is, is worse, of course. Uh, is it sort of a similar argument that you are making to argue that China's investment in Africa is good? I'm not saying that Chinese investment is good. I don't, I think we have to put it this way. That is, um, different kinds of capital, in this case, Chinese state capital, as opposed to private, global private capital, maybe offering different kinds of bargains um, to African, African workers. Um, Chinese employment, Chinese jobs, in the cases that I study, are oftentimes um, low paying and um, but then they because they wanted to keep production going for for very important uh, state reasons uh, they keep people employed but give them low wages and uh, for global private companies they usually react to any fluctuation in the market by laying off people by retrenching uh, because they want to send a signal to shareholders that the companies are reacting to cut costs whenever uh, instability in the stock market occur. So they basically resort to laying off as, as a means to please um, stockholders. And so that's why retrenchment um, is such a big issue for workers employed in global private company. And there the problem for them is to be excluded, not exploited, excluded totally from the job market. So from the perspective of Zambian workers, you, the, the deal is, I don't think they consider both uh, good deals. Both are not good deals. Um, they all want stable and well-paying jobs like everybody else in the world. But the bargain in front of them is if you want to get stable employment or relatively stable employment, you go with the Chinese, but they pay lower wages. But if you want higher wages, you go to the global private employers, but then they would retrench you and lay you off um, very suddenly. And so, um, so what is better? I don't think the Chinese are better necessarily because they pay low wages. Um, it depends on, you know, what your situations are. And to me, I don't think either of them, either of the bargain is good. Both are bad bargains. But the point is, they are different bargains. Let's leave some of the conclusions to, to the readers that will have to buy the book. <laughs> they will find a more complex answer. Uh, before we move to the conclusions, I have a, another quick question, which is about the policy implications, which are very important in your case, 
And this is part of our job. But around the world, for example, in economics, there is a kind of inflation of economists. The discipline has been trivialized and nobody now trusts an economist because you cannot recognize a proper one or a random person that happens to be talking economics in TV about trade, monetary policy, or the European Union. So this is somehow endangering the credibility of economics and the ability to offer policy recommendations that people trust. Um, what's about sociology and sociologists? Well, sociology has never attained the status of science as much as economics has. Um, and, and also sociologists are not relied on, have never been really relied on to produce um, policies. Uh, there are separate schools in the U.S., for instance. There are schools of public policy where people are really trained to analyze and to propose public policies. Um, they, they are not in sociology, and that's, that tells you a fact, which is that sociology is not known, is not expected at least in the U.S., to deliver uh, policy solutions so that we don't have the problem of being discredited um, by the fact that economists uh, haven't been able to come up with reasonable policies to deal with economic crisis because we never were expected um, to, to do that. And so our influence really um, hasn't reached the, the, public, the public policy domain, um, which is the domain of another group of academics. Um, these are public policy scholars. And um, again, I don't know whether that is good or bad, but I think we're more modest in terms of our work. We know we can try produce knowledge to help people to understand um, the world, but in terms of how to fix problems in the world, I think most sociologists would find themselves not qualified, and um, and especially those who are honest with you, they was they would not <laughs> they would not claim to come up with the best policy solutions to solve social problems as sociologists. Thank you very much, CK. Um, this was a, a beautiful book. Uh, I strongly suggest everybody to buy it. Uh, it also includes amazing pictures. It is timely, brave piece of field research. It is a nonconformist in its conclusion, original, important, erudite, and it's very pleasant to read. Let me finish actually reading one of the last lines of the book where you express your gratitude to the workers you have met in Zambia, in particular in the, in the Zambian mines. And this is the end of the paragraph. I will always relish spontaneous moments of friendship and solidarity. Loaded drivers, engineers, and mine captains, I shadowed, would spot and pick up pieces of ore from the ground, point their headlights on them, and all of a sudden, the bornite, azurite, or calcophorite in the rocks would glitter purple, blue, or gold in the dark. Passing them to me, they would say, here is souvenirs for you. And this is one example of how beautiful, almost a novel, is this book. Thank you very much. This was C.K. Lee, The Spectre of Global China, Politics, Labor, and Foreign Investment in Africa, published in 2017 by the University of Chicago Press. Thank you for being with us. Thank you. Thank you. It was very interesting. Thanks a lot.